All right. So Galatians gets at the heart of what the gospel is and, and how we live it out. Over the last several weeks, we've seen Paul defend his apostolic authority to proclaim this good news. He has shown that his gospel is not his own creation, but it's God's. He's been demonstrating this in many ways. Last week, we looked at Paul defending his good news in Jerusalem. This week, we will look at him defending his gospel in Syrian Antioch as he brings up the reality of acceptance in Christ outside of our own merit. The apostolic authority of Paul here is demonstrated by his ability to confront the well-known apostle, Simon Peter. This situation is fascinating because we're looking at the opposition between two of the most well-known figures across church history. So let's get a bird's-eye view of the situation. At first, we have Peter getting along well with the Gentile believers until some Judaizers associated with James draw him back. I'm not quite sure how James, the brother of Jesus, relates here, though it's worth noting that he's not criticized by Paul here. These Judaizers want the non-Jews to keep the Mosaic law, which includes kosher foods, ceremonial laws, and circumcision, which is the focus here. They get Peter to stop fellowshipping with the Gentiles, and Peter getting involved in this mess leads to a bigger mess, and this incites Paul to confront him. Paul confronts him with the doctrine of justification. Now, this passage is the first place where Paul brings up this great doctrine. Over the next couple weeks and in the next couple passages, we're going to see Paul fervently defend this doctrine. Justification by faith alone is a truth that is critical to understand and is an important part of the good news of Jesus. It shows that trusting in yourself doesn't get you anywhere and that trusting in Christ magnifies the great grace of God seen in the cross. This text displays that truth so powerfully, and I want to show you that this morning. So first, we're going to look at the doctrine of justification. What is justification? How do we get it? What is faith? Then we will look at seven ways this doctrine engages with the situation in this text. So justification is a word that we hear a lot, and rightfully so. The cry of the Protestant Reformation was that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for God's glory alone. And this is a key passage that illuminates that reality. So to justify, in simple terms, means consider someone as righteous. So justification is an act of God where a sinner in God's courtroom is declared once and for all to be just, despite any righteousness in themselves. So we're not talking about your practical righteousness. Your thoughts and actions are not all of a sudden holy when you are justified, but in relation to God, in how the true judge views you, you are positionally righteous. This means that your legal status before God in God's book is holy. Your place in God's heart is one of favor. Despite any goodness on your part to deserve this, the judge accepts accepts you, approves of you, and loves you. Your part is to say, if I have that, that's all that matters to me. Your part is to receive that gift. Your part is to receive that by faith. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen, as Hebrews 11 puts so concisely. So when we put our faith in Christ, we live in the amazingly true reality that Christ paid for you with his blood. We embrace the substance of God's promises despite what we see now, and we lean on Jesus as our hope. Our lives should flow from walking in that solid assurance. You are his. God is for you. You are totally accepted by him and totally dependent on him. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is what Paul boldly brings to bear on this scenario in our text this morning. So as we hop into this text, we will see why Paul does what he does as he presses into this glorious truth of justification by faith. 
Now I want to show you seven realities in this passage tied to this truth. The first reality we will look at is that our divine acceptance in justification is contrary to our desire for human acceptance. At the beginning of this passage, we see that Paul is not concerned with what other people think of him. Scripture says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul is publicly opposing one of the most well-known followers of Jesus because Paul is far more concerned with the truth than he is with teaching what will be popular. Paul, after talking about false gospels, says in Galatians 1.10, If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can either chase after the approval of people or rest in your approval in Christ. Now, in contrast to Paul not seeking man's approval, we have, see, we have Peter withdrawing himself from the Gentiles to appease the Judaizers. Why does he do that? Notice the word Paul uses in the last part of verse 12. It says that he separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. He feared them. Now, what does that mean? Because his life doesn't really seem like it's in danger or anything. We often call this fear of man. You might not think of chasing after the appreciation as being a kind of fear, but it is. When we want to be liked, we fear the rejection we may get. When you fear something, the thought of it consumes you. It it consumes your decision-making. There is only one that should consume us in that way. When Peter fears the Judaizers, he fears losing their approval. This is where remembering justification by faith will help. When we don't have faith, we fear. In Matthew 8.26, Jesus says, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? When we put our faith in Christ, we don't need to fear. Author Dane Ortland comments on this text that we are not unlike Peter in his desire to keep others' approval. He says, What we all tend to do is walk through life amassing a sense of who we are as an aggregate of what we think everyone else thinks of us. But as the gospel becomes real to us, the need for human approval loses its vice-like grip on our hearts because we're no longer putting our heads on our pillows at night, medicating our sense of worth with human approval. The doctrine of justification frees us not only from the judgment of God, but also from the judgment of people in the present. And this is true because we don't want to get so caught up in our standing before people that we forget our standing before God. In the Christian life, only our standing before God should hold any gravity. As justified Christians, we are totally accepted by God, so we don't need to look for the approval of others. So, having looked at how we shouldn't seek after human acceptance, but rest in God's approval, we now go to our second point. Our common justification tears down our social walls. Paul says that Peter regularly ate with the Gentiles. Eating with them meant that he probably didn't keep all the Jewish dietary laws, and and he fellowshiped with them. When the Bible talks about fellowshipping with one another, it often describes eating together. When, when the Bible describes how Jesus reaches out to broken people, it says that he eats with tax collectors and sinners, Matthew 9:11. When the Bible talks about someone under church discipline, it says not to eat with such a person, 1 Corinthians 5:11. There's something special about eating with one another. This thought was in the bulletin a couple weeks ago, and I thought I'd share it here. Mealtime was a big deal to Jesus because it was a chance to deepen friendships, welcome strangers, and serve the poor. Could our everyday, ordinary mealtimes do the same? Although Peter originally did this, he says he withdrew and separated himself. Peter put up social barriers between him and the Gentile believers. Now, our social problems can sometimes be a result of 
underlying theological problems, and Paul smells some bad theology under this whole ordeal. His indictment of Peter comes later, where he says, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter's hypocrisy is directly exposed by Paul. While Peter was originally living like a Gentile, in that he associated freely with others, he switched to living like a Jew. MacArthur notes that this means that they were known at the time for, for separating themselves from others. And they, had, they had several boundary markers in place uh, to, to keep them uh, separate from those around them. Some of these were part of the good law that God gave Moses, and other, some of these other markers were, were laws that they added on top o- across the centuries. With, with Christ, these markers are done away with. Paul says later at the end of Galatians 3, through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel takes away all places for putting up walls and any kind of prejudice. We are all one in Christ Jesus. When we understand the gospel, we see that we're all sinners, and we all stand before God in, in the same Lord, in the same righteousness, in the same acceptance, with the same dependence. All believers do. So third, we're going to look at the consequences of forgetting justification. Now, justification might seem like a basic doctrine that you won't forget and start working for your own salvation. But consider here that even Peter forgot. Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Our Lord himself changed his name to mean rock, which is Peter in Greek and Cephas in Aramaic. Peter was supposed to be a pillar in his community, yet we see him falter here. More than that, it might not even be forgetting as we might normally think of it. Notice how the text calls the actions here hypocrisy twice in verse 13. The rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. A hypocrite can say one thing and, and live another way. If you had asked Peter in the scene if he believed in justification by faith alone, he may very well ha- have agreed, but his actions didn't point to that. In the same way, you can think that you believe all the right things about justification in the gospel without putting your hope in Christ. This is why it's important to be reminded of truths like this. Notice the compounding effect of Peter's sin. Many Jews joined him in his sin. Peter's effectual denial of justification in this, in this situation affected those around him. The passage says that even Barnabas joined in the hypocrisy of the Jews. Barnabas was a ministry partner of Paul mentioned up in verse 9. Many people are getting swept away in, in the wake of Peter's cowardice. So, so there's some serious damage going on here, which which explains why Paul is handling this in the way that he is. Paul says in verse 14, When I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone. Paul is publicly confronting Peter on this issue. This goes against what our instincts may tell us to do in regards to handling conflict. We may think that Paul should handle this with Peter privately, but Paul is perfectly justified in going after Peter in this way for a couple reasons. First, in the context of this book, Paul is defending his apostolic authority. He's showing that God has given given him the truth and the authority to defend it. Second, the damage done isn't just between Paul and Peter. It's a much bigger issue. It's, It's with the broader community. And Peter is a public figure involved in this problem. Public sin needs to be met with public admonishment for causes public consequences. Third, 
as justification by faith is being ignored here, the truth of the gospel is hanging in the balance. Defending the gospel is the reason Paul gives here in verse 14. It's, it's his responsibility to make the gospel clear. And the people need to see the seriousness of the error here. So even though our sin can no longer separate us from God, he still takes it very, very seriously. We can't afford to forget the gospel. If we want to be straightforward with the truth, we need to read truth and hear truth. We need to remind ourselves of it every day so we can keep our conduct in step with the gospel and total dependence on Christ. The fourth point is that our justification frees us from relying on our own righteousness. Let's start in verse 15. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Peter and Paul were raised in the Jewish system. The Gentile believers were not raised to keep the Mosaic law. So when Paul refers to sinners from among the Gentiles here, he he doesn't use the same definition of sinners that we normally do. Here and later in this passage, sinners refers to those who are not seen as law keepers. But in reality, no one can keep the law, Jews or Gentiles. We all need Christ, as verse 16 shows. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now that verse may sound a little redundant, and it is a little, but Paul wants to make clear justification by faith alone. The thrust of his argument is that we should believe on Jesus, put our faith in him. I want you to look down at verse 16 again, and I'm going to break it up like A, B, C, B, A. His argument in this verse is essentially this. A, works don't justify. B, but faith does. C, therefore put your faith in Christ. You know, believe on Jesus. Because back to B, faith justifies, and A, works don't. That's his argument in that verse. In other words, he's saying you need to put your faith in Christ because your works don't get you anywhere. Saying your works give you merit with God is legalism. As justified believers, we don't rely on our own righteousness. We must rely on Christ and his righteousness. Our prideful self wants to work to earn what it is, wants to work to deserve what it is given. But with the gospel, we are free from that. Now, many of us grew up knowing what the doctrine of justification means. You may not consciously try to work your way to heaven, but there may be ways where we live as though we have not grasped our innocence in Christ. You may act as though you were originally saved by faith, but your works keep you saved. But that's not the case, because the moment God grants you faith, he once for all time counts you as righteous. You may act as though your works dependence is okay, because you you say, oh, God produced those works in me. But even even God-produced works don't justify us before God, only faith. You may act as though God owes you something because of what you do or, or, or you're so worthy of, of God's acceptance, but, but our works don't get us anywhere with God. You may act as though God likes you now, how much God likes you now depends on, on how we live, but no matter how much Bible reading, service, or, or faithfulness we, we have, uh, none of that will, will make God have more favor on us than he already does. We already stand as perfectly righteous before God. You may act as though God is punishing you for the sinful deeds that you do, but remember that, as Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, no condemnation, right now. 
We are secure in the settled status we have as Christians. We are totally accepted by God. Now, with, with all that being said, what's the reason to do good works? If your good works don't make God like you more and your sins don't make God angry with you, why should we live as he says? And that brings us to our next point. The fifth reality I want you to see in this text is that justification is a drive for good works in the Christian life. Paul continues in verse 17, but if we ourselves, that's Paul and the believing Jews, are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Now, that's an interesting question that we might not have thought to ask, and this part of the passage can get a little confusing. Remember again that sinners here refers to those who are not seen as keeping the law. So when Paul left his works dependence and fled to Christ at his call, you could argue that Christ is anti-works. If God justifies by faith and not by works, does that mean that God doesn't care about works? Paul says that is absolutely not the case. Notice the phrase, seeking to be justified. If justification in Christ was Paul's endeavor, that means that he went to Christ to deliver him from his guilt of sin. The implication here is that he hates his sin. If you endeavor to be justified, you don't like your sin. Orienting away from sin, that is repentance, goes hand in hand with what faith is. So far from trying to break the law, Paul in reality is turning away from sin. In fact, Paul would really be a transgressor of the law if he went back to it. As verse 18 says, if I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. Paul will evidently transgress the law if he tried to keep it, as the law demands absolute perfection. If you rely on your own righteousness, it will never compare to God's standards, but relying on the law was never the point. Part of the whole purpose of the law of Moses was to be an elementary pointer to Christ, which is why Paul can't rebuild the law dependence that he tore down. He has Christ now. The one the law pointed to, Christ, took away the need for law dependence. So the law actually shows our need for Christ, and that law dependence is futile. Or as verse 19 says, for through the law, I died to the law. Paul is dead to the law in that it no longer has any power power over him. He's not bound to it. He's bound to God in Christ now. For, as he says again, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. While the law could only accuse Paul of sin, Paul has, now has the power to truly live for God. So far from good works being ignored, Paul now has the power to tr- truly live for God. And Paul shows that this death to the law as the reason he can live for God. Paul cannot and will not depend on the law anymore. Now, across the pages of Scripture, we see many motivations for, for holy living. There, there's not one, seek, one key biblical secret to, to living for God. We shouldn't find some you know, special trick that, um, that all, all the experts use on their way to holiness. Um, the, the, the Bible gives us many, many different reasons why we should, should follow God. But, but, the, but the motivation for holiness that this text offers you this morning is remembering your justification. The stuck in sinew is not how God sees you now that you're a believer. You don't have to rely on works to merit you anything, but you live by faith in the new standing he has given you. 
you are totally accepted by God. Let that draw you into a total dependence on him. For a sixth point, we will look at your union with Christ as the basis for your justification by faith. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The way Paul speaks of the significance of Christ in this text is just incredible. Paul's union with Christ is such that he shares in his death and life. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Christ is our righteousness. We share in him. This is why Paul is able to be free from the law, because Christ's righteousness is his. It's imputed to him. In other words, his, this righteousness is now under Paul's account because he is in Christ. The supreme judge counts us as righteous when we are justified because he sees Christ's righteousness in us since we are united with him. When you put your faith in Christ, everything that Christ is becomes yours. We receive him by faith. So justification by faith doesn't just happen just by accepting certain truths to be real. Faith is not merely a mental agreement to facts. John Calvin says that by faith, we not only acknowledge that Christ suffered and rose from the dead on our account, but accepting the offers which he makes of himself, we possess and enjoy him as our savior. In a word, faith is not a distant view, but a warm embrace of Christ by which he dwells in us and we are filled with the divine spirit. I love how he puts that. Faith is a warm embrace of Christ. So justification by faith functions because of our embrace with Christ, embrace of Christ. So our total acceptance of God is because when we embrace Christ, we were united with him, and God sees us as he sees his son. Likewise, our total dependence on him is because, as verse 20 says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, we can still go deeper into how justification by faith functions. The passage ends this way. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, Christ died for nothing. This brings us to our seventh point. The ground of the grace of God and justification is the cross of Christ. When Paul talks about his faith in Christ, he brings up Christ's love and sacrifice that he made for Paul. This is personal to Paul. Christ loved me, gave himself for me. Jesus didn't die for the world in some removed, abstract way. His death was deeply personal in his love for every individual believer. Paul's faith is in view of this love and sacrifice. And this isn't just a faith that Paul has. The text says he lives by faith. The life Paul lives in the body is in the reality that Christ totally accepts him and loves him and that Christ gave, gave his own life for him. Now, now, what's the significance of Paul saying he, he gave himself for him? Uh, we, well, we see from verse 12 that its significance comes through whether or not righteousness comes through the law. It says, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. As Paul established earlier, Righteousness does not come through the law. If it did, we wouldn't need Christ's death because we could avoid God's just wrath on our own. But as it is, Christ's death is significant because we were under God's just wrath and it needed to be satisfied. This is ground zero of the gospel. 
Christ satisfied God's wrath with his death as the pinnacle of a life lived in perfect obedience to God's standards. There on the cross, our sins were placed on him as our substitute. In doing this, he bought us and brought to us all the blessings of God's grace. And Paul says here that he does not set aside this grace. This grace has value beyond what we can imagine. While the, while the offer of the gospel is totally free, in, in a sense, grace is not free. It's not cheap. It costs our friend everything. As Paul says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. What greater price can someone pay and what greater gift can someone give than themselves? Christ gave us that gift and he paid that price. But we often count this gift as cheap by the way we live. We nullify the grace of God when we live as though the cross has no impact on our lives. This verse shows us that the way we live says something about what we think about the cross and what we think about God and his grace. Paul shows us that if human performance can achieve right standing with God, we diminish the magnitude of God's marvelous grace. God's total acceptance of us was purchased on a cross. Our lives should cling solely to that grace independence. So, that was our seventh point. I'll, I'll quickly review the points again here. Um, the first reality we looked at is that divine acceptance over human acceptance. And then how our common justif- justification unites us socially. Third, we looked at the consequences of forgetting justification. Fourth, we looked at the freedom we have from relying on the law. Fifth, remembering justification is a motivation for Christ-dependent works. And then we looked at how our union with Christ is the basis for our justification by faith. Lastly, the ground of the grace of God in justification is the cross of Christ. I hope we all see that justification by faith alone isn't some um, overrated truth that should come up in evangelism and and then take a back seat. This text is not in an evangelistic context. Peter is is already a believer in in this text. For, For believers, remembering that we are settled and secure should be an instinct in, in the Christian life. We, we, we are secure in God's eyes. Peter had forgotten that the faith that God grants us at salvation is what God uses to sustain us throughout our lives, although he only forgot for a short time. He, la- he later writes in, in 1 Peter 1, 5, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God will guard you and keep you as someone who already stands in right relation with God. You are totally accepted by God, so walk in total dependence on him by faith. I'll close with the comment that reformer Martin Luther makes on this text. A Christian is not he which has no sin or feels no sin, but he to whom God imputes not his sin because of his faith in Christ. This doctrine brings strong consolation to afflicted consciences in serious and inward terrors. It is not without good cause, therefore, that we so often repeat and beat into your heads, into your minds, the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness for Christ's sake. A Christian has nothing to do with the law and sin, especially in the time of temptation. For in as much as he is a Christian, he is above the law and sin. For he has Christ the Lord of the law, present and enclosed in his heart, as a ring has a precious stone enclosed in it. 